Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Tom Thorpe. The Combat Morale Podcast explores what motivates people to fight or not fight in armed conflict. A quick disclaimer before we get to the action. The views expressed by any of the guests on the podcast are purely of a personal nature. Do not represent the views or opinions of any organisation or government. With that disclaimer out of the way. On today's programme, I talk to historian, author and academic Professor Tim Lockley. Tim is a professor at the School of Comparative American Studies at the University of Warwick. We discuss the morale and motivation of enslaved African men who became British soldiers when they were conscripted into the British West India Regiment in the Caribbean between the 1790s and 1815. Tim spoke to me from his office in Warwick. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and your interest in the West India Regiment and and its life and times during the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars? So I'm a professor of history at Warwick University. Um, I've been there for 20 plus years, uh, probably 25 years now. And um, I started out as a historian of slavery, mainly in the US. So an American historian. Um, And then over the last 20 odd years, my interests have sort of evolved. So I became a bit more interested in the history of medicine, specifically the relationship between the history of medicine and slavery and ideas about um, racial, uh, the impact of disease on on different types of people and how those ideas developed in the 19th century. Um, And then in around 2015, uh, a colleague of mine who's a Caribbean historian and I had a conversation where we decided we wanted to do a, a sort of joint research project together. And so we got funding from the AHRC, the Arts and Humanities Research Council, to run a three-year project on the West India Regiment. So uh, this project had multiple strands to it. And I, so I was only responsible for one bit of it. But I was responsible for the bit that looked at the medical side of the West India Regiments. And I was particularly interested in that, partly because I'd written before on medicine and race and slavery, but also because... Um, it became clear to me that these were the most heavily studied and documented black men in anywhere in the world in the 19th century. And that's because the army kept really good records about everything. Uh, you know, the army bureaucracy is famous and it was it was very detailed in the 19th century and nowhere else. Um, not even the biggest plantations have got the the detail and the depth and the richness of records that the British army has about these black men over the course of the best part of a century. So even though there are gaps in the records, there are always gaps and there are always records that have been lost. There's enough there so that you can actually write quite a lot about the West India regiments and how these men experienced life. Um, But also they're particularly rich relating to disease and mortality. And that's because the army had a vested interest in knowing how many soldiers were fit, how many soldiers were sick, what soldiers died of, how could they prevent disease, how could they prevent mortality. So they kept really detailed records about those kinds of things. And they actually published a whole lot of it um, in statistical form. And those records were then used by a whole load of other people, completely unrelated to military um, life, to make a wider argument about um, what it means to be black and specifically how disease impacted black people and how it was different from how it impacted white people. Um, and then they made a whole load of theories based on this stati- these statistics. But without the West Indian regiments, 
they wouldn't have been able to do that because no one else was collecting statistics in the way the British Army was collecting statistics. So can we start um, with actually looking at the formation of the British West India Regiment in the 1790s and how British uh, authorities or British military authorities in the Caribbean purchased enslaved African men to fill the ranks of this unit? So when the when the British decided they needed proper black regiment um, in early 1795, and, there, and there was a number of reasons for this, um, the, the French who they're fighting in the Caribbean had started to recruit slaves into their military units and the British were outmatched and they thought they needed to compete with the French. So there's a military, re- definitely a military reason for that as well. Um, but there's also a medical reason, and this, this is what I talk about a bit in, in, my, in my work, that there was a new strain of yellow fever that arrived in the Caribbean in 1793. It's a particularly virulent strain. Um, it's never been exposed to humans before, and it absolutely rips through uh, the British regiments in the Caribbean to the extent that 80 and 90% of the men are incapacitated. The mortality rates are horrendous. Probably 30% of the men die of yellow fever. Um, and, they, and what's left of the unit, are, they're not able to conduct effective military operations. At the same time, there is a widespread belief that black people are immune to yellow fever. Now, they're not immune to yellow fever, but most people coming from Africa had had yellow fever as a child because it's endemic in West Africa. If you get it as a child, it's a comparatively mild disease. It's a bit like if you get, I don't know, chickenpox as a child, it's a comparatively mild disease. If you get shingles as an adult, not so much. Um, and it's, it, it's works similarly that yellow fever as an adult is very, very deadly, whereas in a child it's comparatively mild and most children survive and then they're immune. And so that people coming from Africa, from West Africa, were generally immune to yellow fever because they'd had it before. So the the solution to the British Army's manning crisis is to recruit people from African descent. They try and recruit them in the West Indies, not very successfully, uh, partly because planters don't want to give or sell their slaves to the army. They need them. They, you know, they've got enough slaves to grow sugar and harvest sugar. They don't have spare slaves lying around. Uh, but they're also opposed to the whole idea of black regiment for uh, military purposes in the Caribbean. They think they're a terrifying prospect. And so after a couple of years of trying and generally failing to organize these regiments between 1795 and 1797, 1798, then the army decides it's going to buy men directly from slave ships, which of course, they're, they're arriving in the Caribbean on a regular basis. So there's a ready supply. And so they instruct their recruiters to basically go down to the, the ships and buy men of a certain height, certain age, and enlist them into the West Indian regiments. So these men aren't given a choice in this matter. It's not like saying, would you like to do this or would you like to go off and be a plantation slave? Um, They are just said, right, we'll have you, we'll have you, we'll have you. He's the right age. Um, Obviously only men, not women, um, or children. So usually they had to be over five foot, Something. I mean, they initially say, "Oh, five foot six, five foot seven, and then they, they they keep on lowering that height to, to, to in order to get enough men. So quite a few of them aren't that big. Uh, they're meant to be adults. There are plenty of young teenage boys, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, who were recruited. Um, so, and then they're marched off and they're given a uniform and told that they are now soldiers. Uh, obviously, there's a massive linguistic issue. These people don't speak English, so. Uh, learning English is something that they need to do pretty quickly, at least enough English to be a soldier. 
Um, and so the army buys thousands and thousands and thousands of men, probably more than 10,000 um, up until 1807 when the slave trade is ended. And absolutely, the, um, the, the British army was the largest slaveholder probably in the world but it's largest slaveholder in the, in the caribbean by far no planter owned ten thousand slaves no matter how big the plantation and on a point of information one are these individuals who are who are i suppose pressed into military service uh under the, the british crown do they remain slaves or do they become freed men what's their official sort of legal status at this officially time? and legally they are slaves so colonial legislatures are pretty sure that these men are slaves they've been bought so they're not emancipated. Um, but there's there's, there's a, a conflict here between civil and military justice and military um, jurisdiction. So the army is very reluctant to have civilians have anything to do with their men. So there are very few examples of civilian authorities actually getting their hands on one of these men and treating them like a slave. So, for example, if somebody deserted, then... The civilian authority might say, well, this man's actually a slave and therefore I'm going to treat him like a slave. The army has something else to say about that, saying this man's a deserter. I mean, the outcome might be the same, but it's it's saying it's asserting its authority. Um, the army never treats them like slaves. And by that, I mean, the army never sells anyone. So although it's spent out millions of pounds, literally millions on buying these men, it never then cashes that money in and sells them. And when the men are injured or too old, or um, then they they get pensioned off just like any other soldier, and and throughout their time as soldiers, these men are paid, so they get a salary just like the men in the white regiments, and so the army never treats them like slaves, and I think that's an important thing to remember. It doesn't desperately treat them well, but it doesn't treat white soldiers well either. Um, but it it doesn't treat them as slaves are, and when you compare what life on a plantation was like then I would think life in a regiment was generally preferable. And did the British try and purchase enslaved African men from certain parts of Africa to correspond with, with their sort of ideas of martial qualities? For instance, some people from certain tribes might have sort of more military or warlike qualities. Um, and obviously this is based on their racist perception of the time. And so did they try and purchase them from different parts of Africa? And... I, but I might wonder whether we probably better start this with actually talking what 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 we mean by martial races. Okay, so the British had an idea. Um, probably all Europeans had ideas about which about certain groups of people in Africa and what they were like. So they attributed national characteristics to various people, and so um, the Coromanti, the people who live in what is now Ghana, were generally seen to be a warlike race, warlike group of people because they had a military martial culture that made them particularly suited to warfare. Um, by contrast, other groups were often described as being docile, ideal for enslavement, uh, or robust and hardworking. Now, all of these are highly subjective and often completely spurious categories of defining people. But although some recruiters expressed a hope that they would be able to get say, Coromanti slaves, because they would be the most likely to be effective soldiers. They weren't very successful at that. Judging what we know about where men came from, generally they mirror where slaves as a whole came from. So we know that a whole load of them came from the Igbo, Igbo area of Nigeria. Um, a load came from the Hausa area, which is also sort of Nigeria, Cameroon, that kind of area. There were plenty of people who came from what is now Gambia. Um 
So the broad percentages that where we know slaves came from in the British colonies are sort of where West Indian Regiment soldiers came from, I would have said. There's no indication that even if they wanted men who were from the Coromantes, they actually got them. Um, there's no indication they were successful in that. So how big did the West India Regiment become? What sort of numbers and battalions are we talking about in the late 18th century and early 19th century? Well, there are lots of West India Regiments. So they start out with two and then it becomes eight and then it becomes 12. Um, so between, I think, 1798 and 1802, there are 12 West India Regiments. Then after the Peace of Amiens, which is 1802, they cut them to from 12 to eight, back to eight. And then they stay at eight all the way through to the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815. Then they drop um, four of them pretty quickly. Um, then the fourth West India Regiment goes about 1817, 1818. The third lasts a little bit longer into the early 1820s. Uh, and then the third goes and then there's only two for a while. Then in the 1850s and 60s, they add the third and then the fourth back again. And then they drop them back again to two. Um, and eventually the two, one and two, merge in 1888, I think, to just one regiment. So there are lots of different um, regiments, and we always refer to them as the plural rather than the singular for most of their history. As to numbers, I think there are probably never more than about 8,000 at one time soldiers. And usually the regiments are slightly under their numbers. So when there are eight regiments, for example, during most of the 18, early 1800s, 1810s, they're meant to be eight regiments of a thousand, but usually they're quite significantly under that. They're usually more like seven, eight hundred each. So I think eight thousand would be the top number, and probably more like six to seven on a regular basis. And then after Waterloo, probably more like two thousand. And how military quotes reliable and effective were these units, and where did they serve during this, this sort of period? Well, they mainly serve in the Caribbean, as you would expect. <clears throat> That's their main purpose. Um, we know they are um, quite militarily effective. They win battle honours, for instance, at, at the capture of various French islands, including Martinique and Guadeloupe and Marie Galante. Um, so, that, so they win those for their military prowess. Commanders who write about them or write letters to London or write memoirs later, they nearly always talk about them very positively, that they are brave, they are loyal, they are disciplined. They are excellent at what they call bushcraft, which is fighting in um, sort of a skirmishing formation. So probably less so at the let's lie, all line up in squares, sort of the Waterloo type battle. Um, but the Caribbean battles generally aren't like that. The terrain doesn't suit it because it's very mountainous. Uh, it's covered in forest. It, it's it's tricky warfare. And their kind of... Um, what you call light infantry type manoeuvres maneuvers are generally they they do very very well and and the commanders are almost universally uh, full of praise for their bravery and their um, military ability and partly they attribute that to their um, their white commanders so they because they're always white officers there's a white officer class and they often say well you know of course they're expertly led um, and expertly trained but they also give an element of uh, credibility to ideas about natural um, military abilities of Africans and by that I mean they often talk about them having um, wonderful tracking skills they talk about them having expert eyesight which is useful if you're going to shoot a gun 
great dexterity, so very good at the business of loading and you know firing a gun, which is again a useful skill to have as a, as a soldier. Um, very good hearing, so they can hear drum beats or bugle sounds on the battlefield. Uh, so these they they make them out as having these sort of super senses. Something I talk about in my book is this idea of super senses, in that they're much better equipped than white people. And it goes hand in hand with this idea that they are less mentally equipped. So they have got better senses, but you wouldn't get them to, you know, write poetry or um, you know, direct the light opera. Uh, but of course, as a soldier, you don't need to do any of those things. You know, so they, uh, they're full of praise of their sort of what they call natural ability. Which leads me on to the, um, I suppose, the crux factor and the purpose of this podcast is what persuaded these soldiers to serve the British crown? I, I was just wondering what sort of factors actually got them into uniform, why they sort of served, what kept them going. And essentially, do we have any indication of what, what, what their morale or their, um, their sort of feelings of service were? It's very difficult to get into the mentality of your regiment soldiers. They don't leave us lots of um memoir don't leave any memoirs in fact i mean these are not a literate group of men so we, we have to read between the lines as to why they fought um think about it like this so you so you're kidnapped in africa you're put on a ship you're transported across the atlantic to the caribbean you get off the caribbean you get off the boat having had a horrendous three-month voyage or whatever however long it took um full of trepidation no idea what's going to happen to you you know all the worst fear fears are probably in your head and then you get offered the chance to have a um a bed decent food decent clothing pay and a gun well if your alternative is going and working in a sugar plantation where conditions are way worse um the violence is worse you know the bodily violence you'll experience is worse the mortality rates are worse there's no pay uh clothing is scanty Food is, well, whatever you can forage half the time. Um, you know, being a soldier, it certainly looks like an attractive proposition then. And also you've got to remember these these men would have had no concept of of how you could go home. I mean, obviously, they probably would want to go home, see their families that they would have been stripped away from three months ago. But there's no way to do that. There's no way to go back to Africa. Um, so they're faced with those two choices. Or, or, and, and half the time it isn't a choice. But if you're given what you think of as the better choice, then you take it. And we don't get any sense that they that people who were in the West India regiments had any kind of racial affinity with the enslaved. They think of themselves as being a superior class of people because they have the uniform, they have the weaponry. They're not the downtrodden, the lowest of the low. And so you see them being used to Hunt maroons. Maroons are runaway slaves who are hiding away in the mountains. You can see them. They they used to do that to go out and hunt maroons, and they do it quite happily. There's no sense that they were saying, "No, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I am going to uh, show affinity with my oppressed black brothers." I think we overstate that idea. Uh, they think of themselves as above that, um, and the army does quite a good job at instilling a sense of military pride in them. I think as well, saying, "You are better." You are the king's soldiers. Uh, you, you've got a status here in the way that these other guys haven't. Um, and then when the, the slave trade ends in 1807 and the, the army can no longer just buy men, what it does is that it, it recruits men in Sierra Leone. Now, Sierra Leone was the place where anyone taken from a slave ship 
was left. So if when the when the Royal Navy intercepted a slave ship, it didn't take them back to the place they'd just come from. So if they were if they'd come out of I don't know Angola, they didn't take them back to Angola. They took them to Sierra Leone. Now there are some practical reasons for that. Obviously, Sierra Leone is a British territory, so they could take them to Sierra Leone safely. And if they took them back to, to Angola, they could easily just be re-enslaved and be on the next ship that's going across to Brazil. Um, but of course, if you've come from Angola, then Sierra Leone is, well, it's as alien as, as Barbados is. Um, so again, when you're offered the opportunity, and then you've got the option of, uh, and it's a, it is more of a choice then, uh, a bit more of a choice. When you've got the option of you know, pay, clothing, regular food, all that kind of stuff, or not, then I could see why men would take that. And did people actually, or did, did some of those men actually make careers out of military service? Did they get promoted? Did they get, you know, into sort of, I suppose, quartermaster positions? You know, they sort of have, they have a sort of a career path, which it which becomes open to them. And some of them actually choose to actually pursue a military career. Yes. The, the limitations for uh, black soldiers are NCO roles. So they get promoted to corporal and to sergeant with more pay, you know, better accommodation, et cetera. Um, that's their limit, though. They can't go beyond that. So they can't go into any kind of other officer role. Um, they don't get commissions or anything like that. But they can get into a um, command, effectively, NCO role. And that's a really important role in those regiments because they are the people who um, are able to shape the new recruits into an effective fighting force. They're more likely to share a common language, for instance, or at least some of a common language. And they're the intermediaries between the white officer class and the rank and file. So they're very important people, the NCOs. Um, and we know from pension records that some of these men are served for 20, sometimes 30 years um, in the regiments. And then when they, then they're, then they're pensioned off when they get too old um, and they are unable to be effective soldiers anymore. They get pensioned off to be, uh, and they get land. Often they get resettled off, uh, usually in places like Trinidad or in Belize. And that's where they get, they form new communities. Um some of them, when the 4th West India Regiment is um, disbanded in about 1818, uh, most of them are taken to Sierra Leone and they create new lives, new communities in Sierra Leone. And was there any sort of special process that the British Army went through to socialise and acculturate these individuals to their new military lives? We don't know a huge amount about it. We get occasional um, glimpses. So we know that most of the men were, re were renamed and given an English name. So you'll see lots of Johns and Samuels and Thomases or whatever, James. Um, and their name was, and they were given usually given a surname. So they weren't just Tom or whatever. They would be, you know, Tom Smith or something. And they would be, uh, their name would be written on a placard and hung around their necks so that other people would know what their name was now going to be. So there is a whole renaming process, which was something that happened on plantations as well. Um, and that's because generally the, the, the white officers weren't going to bother to learn African names. They were going to learn, they're going to tell you what your new name, English name was. And that's how these men appear in the records with their English names. Uh, they do try and teach them English to the extent that they actually have regimental schools and a schoolmaster where they would have regular lessons in order to learn English. Because, of course, the more they are able to learn English and follow commands, the more useful they are as soldiers. So. Uh, literacy, not so much. It'd be interesting to know, and I don't know whether we ever will, whether some of the NCOs were taught to read and write. I think some of them maybe are, you know, the beginnings of that. 
but how effective they are, we'll never know. Uh, but the rank and file, probably not. But learning English was a prerequisite, um, and they, they did in, in push that quite heavily, that they had to learn at least some English and what that meant. I just wonder whether English became a, maybe a common language between many groups of men drawn from different parts of Africa. You know, the assumption that they that all Africans were largely the same, but you put them in a unit and they probably spoke many, many different languages, cultural traditions, etc. And English may have been a, uh, a core bonding unit. You know, that's your common language and that maybe draws you together. I don't know. No, no, I think you're absolutely right, because uh, when you're drawing men from a, a coastline of Africa that is probably 3000 miles long, and they probably speak hundreds of different languages. The likelihood of the men actually speaking a common language, bar one or two of them, might share a language, um, is is unlikely. And so that mostly they are having to learn English as a common language, at least to some extent. Um, some of the men captured or enlisted on the French islands would speak French. So we know there's plenty of people who were recruited in Dominique and Martinique, Dominica and Martinique and um, Guadeloupe, who are French speaking. So uh, they are. And, and and the English officer corps, at least some of them would probably speak French, or at least enough French. But still, English is the preferred mode of instruction. And so what was the role of coercion in keeping the uh, rank-and-file members of the British West India Regiment in order? Were they subject to, I suppose, more severe discipline than their European contemporaries? Um, yes and no. I think they are subject to the same military discipline as white regiments. Uh, so there are regimental court-martials for all the offences that you get white soldiers court-martialed for um there's some suggestion they're more likely to be court-martialed um it you'd have to have a really good set of statistics to show it absolutely definitively um what i i did one little study where there's there's one instance where the fourth west india regiment is stationed in gibraltar for two years so it's alongside some white regiments and then you can do the comparison between regiments that are literally living in the same barracks and then you could tell that generally the black soldiers are given more lashes than white white soldiers for the same offences. So there's probably some truth to the idea that regimental and military discipline was harsher for black soldiers than for white soldiers. There's probably some truth in that. Um, but it's not as a stark as white soldiers were not punished and black soldiers were. All soldiers were punished. Black soldiers were, you know, so many percentage more likely to get punished or so many percentage more likely to have more lashes than white soldiers. And the reason for that is that um, there's a widespread feeling that, um, and this is driven again by surgeons and military doctors, that black skin is tougher than white skin. And therefore, you had to inflict more lashes to get the same result. So whites are seen to have sort of delicate skin. Um, which is more easily broken by the whip and therefore the punishment is over quicker. Whereas blacks are thought of as having this tough skin, almost like a hide, and therefore they needed more chastisement to get the same result. Were there any mutinies or disciplinary problems within the West India regiments? And if so, what factors caused those problems? So we know there are three major uh, mutinies. There's one in Dominica in 1802, there's one in Jamaica in 1808, and there's one in um, Trinidad in 1837. Um, most most of the time, these mutinies were results of mistreatment by commanding officers, usually, um, or by colonial authorities more generally. Uh, 1808 is slightly different. The mutinies led by a small group of very recent arrivals uh, from Africa, 
uh, and is actually suppressed by the rest of the regiment. So it's basically a group of people who've just been sort of enlisted and they're trying to get free. Um, So that's a slight outlier. Dominica is a really interesting case study because Dominica is, uh, these are are men who are, um, they haven't been paid for months and they should get paid regularly. They are being used to undertake what they think is like the work that slaves do. So they're being used to clear swampland, brushlands. They used to build roads. These are all things that slaves do. And at the same time, 1802, there are regiments being reduced. So the 12th, 11th, 10th and 9th are scheduled to be disbanded. And the fear among the regiment is that, well, that means that we're now going to be sold. Now, there isn't any truth to that, but that's the fear. That's the rumour that's going around. So all these things combine. Uh, the sort of corruption of the white officer corps who aren't who are basically scamming you know, the, the men. They're not paying them. Um, then they're using them inappropriately and not as soldiers. And then there's the rumours going around. And so there's quite a few white officers who were killed in this mutiny. Um, but then the mutiny is suppressed by a mixture of white soldiers and some of the West India Regiment itself who, are, who stay loyal. And more than 100 of the men, about 20% of them, are killed in the suppression of the mutiny. And then the 8th West India Regiment is disbanded, and some of the men are sent to join other regiments, other West India Regiments. Um, quite a few of them, probably two to 300, are um, downgraded from regimental soldiers to being pioneers, and pioneers are effectively military labourers who are used to build forts and carry luggage and all that kind of stuff, carry whole cannon for white regiments. And all white regiments in the Caribbean had some black pioneers. And so that's what they're sort of downgraded from being soldiers to being pioneers. Um, and so that's the end of that particular regiment. Though the 8th West India Regiment survives just because they renumber one of the other regiments. The one that's going to be disbanded, they just renumber that as the 8th. I think it's the 11th. or Maybe it's the 10th. I don't know. Um, they just rebadge it as the 8th. So the 8th, you know, it's been disbanded and then six months later you find it still in existence and it was quite confusing for a little while, but then you realise they just renumbered one of the other ones. Um, so usually um, mutinies had a cause. They weren't random. They were mistreatment. And that's, and, and even the army generally when they have inquests after the fact, they acknowledge that there's been mistreatment and that they are, they have been badly treated. And my final question is where can people learn more about your work? Well, uh, they can read my book. Uh, it's called Military Medicine and the Making of Race, Life and Death in the West India Regiment. Uh, it's published by Cambridge University Press. It is uh, now out in paperback. And you can get a 20% discount on the cover price by using the code HIST3222 uh, on the Cambridge University Press website. Uh, and that code is valid until August, the end of August next year. So get it for christmas or you can get it for a birthday or it's a gift that keeps on giving you can get it any day you like um i think you can also get it as an ebook which is probably more expensive and a hardcover which is very expensive um but the paperback is now out so i hope people might enjoy that and there's more about the later history of the west india regiments going right the way through to the 1870s and their campaigns in africa tim thank you very much for your time thank you